everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Universe Within podcast. This episode of the show is being sponsored by my friends over at a company called Real Mushrooms, realmushrooms.com. Um, Sky Chilton and his father, Jeff Chilton. I interviewed Jeff a number of episodes ago. Uh, really interesting guys. I, I really enjoyed that conversation with Jeff. Um, and it's a company that sells and distributes medicinal mushrooms in powder or capsule form. Um, I was really happy to have these guys come on. Uh, I think they're very much in alignment with the, the values of the podcast. Uh, as you all know, a big part of this podcast is uh, about uh, plant medicine, holistic medicine. And I, I think the benefits of medicinal mushrooms are, are truly fantastic. And I think there's really a growing body of work uh, that, that's really showing and alluding to all of the amazing properties that mushrooms have. Um, they sell a lot of different mushrooms, um, things you've probably heard of like reishi, chaga, lion's mane, turkey tail, cordyceps. Um, those are all mushrooms I work with. They, they're, they're part of uh, what I consider uh, for myself a, a really holistic uh, supplement regime. Um, and the, the thing I really love about their company, not only are they really good guys, I think they're really ethical guys, um, but... Um, the, the product is really amazing. It's all uh, 100% mushrooms. They're organic. Uh, and, and that's really rare. For better or for worse, the supplement in this industry is, is highly unregulated. Um, and so often when you get supplements, you don't necessarily know what you're getting. You may be getting some mushroom. You may be getting a bunch of fillers and other things. Oftentimes, even when you're buying what may be a mushroom. It may not have any of that mushroom in it at all, unfortunately. Uh, even some of the big, uh, I think even the biggest company that, that sells mushrooms, actually it's not the fruiting body, not the mushroom itself. It's the mycelial, which is grown on grain, and then those things are mixed up and then sold in a supplement form. So not only are you not getting the mushroom itself, you're getting the mycelium uh, mixed with grain. So um, it's one of the amazing things of real mushrooms is it's exactly that. It's real mushrooms. So it's 100% mushrooms, organic. So you know you're getting a really good uh, product. You're getting the actual fruiting body, the, the mushroom itself, 100% of that. Um, and again, just really great guys. I'm, I'm really happy to have them on and supporting this podcast. Uh, so if you'd like a really good product, uh, you'd like to start working with medicinal mushrooms, um, check out their site, realmushrooms.com. Um, and also listeners of the show. Uh, if you go to their site, realmushrooms.com forward slash universe, you get 25% off your first order, uh, which is a really good deal. And I think once you uh, uh, start working and, and tasting their products, you'll you'll really uh, see and feel a big difference. So uh, thank you to them. And uh, I think that's it. And without further ado, here is the intro to the show. Hey everybody, on this episode I spoke with Rune Hjarno Rasmussen. Uh, Rune's a really fascinating guy. Uh, he was actually recommended to me by a listener of the podcast, and it was very serendipitous timing uh, because I had been looking to bring on someone to speak about Nordic shamanism, Nordic animism, uh, kind of Nordic traditional myths, worldviews. Uh, so he was a really perfect person. 
Uh, we had a really interesting conversation talking about uh, these these very subjects, um, and it was uh, it was very interesting just hearing a story, hearing about these Nordic traditions, some of their roots, uh, the relational aspect uh, of of uh, the, the lands that they come from, the animals that are from those lands, also his own story of also spending time in Brazil and uh, uh, immersed in one of the traditions there called Candomblé and how he learned from that and was able to apply that uh, to his own roots. So it was a really fascinating conversation and I think you all will really enjoy it. Um, as always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a really beautiful way. Uh, it's a website. You can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for. Those tiers give you different things back, things like early access to shows, bonus material, Q&As. To all the people who are supporting that way, to all the patrons, as always, thank you very much for your help. Uh, I deeply appreciate it. It's really what allows me to continue making these uh, episodes. Uh, and if you're able to do that, thank you in advance. Um, one of the things we touched on in in this talk was also this idea of of a relational aspect of uh, of things like reciprocity so it's a really beautiful way that if you feel like you're gaining something from these episodes to to be able to give back uh, there's also the ability to donate via paypal i'll put a link to both of those in the show notes uh, if you're not able to do that as always some of the really small things make a really big difference with the algorithms so if you're viewing this on youtube or rumble subscribing to the show turning on the notification bell liking the video, leaving any questions or comments in the comment section. Those things really help with the algorithms. Uh, and if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, uh, following the show and also leaving a star rating and a short review is a really big help. Uh, so I think that's it. Without further ado, here is my conversation with Rune. I'm running out from the maze. Running out from the maze. Running out of the maze. Well, great. Well, thank you very much for, for coming on. I, I appreciate it. Um, we were chatting a little bit before we started and this kind of came about through, uh, I guess, a friend of yours who also listens mm -hmm. to the podcast who thought you would be a really good fit. And it was quite serendipitous timing. Um, I'm not sure how, no, how much you know about my work, but but I, I do a lot of work with, with plants as medicine. And um, and I lived in the Amazon for, for a long time, for about a decade, uh, living with different uh, groups of people down there, learning their, their, their cosmovisions, their, their medicine. Um, and that became a, a, a big part of my work. I mean, really my life for the last uh, decade or so. Um, but at a certain point, I, I felt very called in this way of, of kind of bridge keeping and, and bringing this medicine back more towards my roots as well, which I, I come from the US and so kind of North American traditions and, and plants and trees and, and also European traditions because a, a lot of us in the US, we have European roots as well. Um, so it really started me on a fascinating journey. And so it's been really interesting for me kind of relearning about 
some of these more traditional European paths, like uh, the, the Celts, the Druids, the, the, the Nords. Uh, so like I was saying, it was quite serendipitous timing that, that uh, this friend of yours reached out. Um, and, uh, you know, it seems like it's one of the things you, you specialize in. So uh, it'll be fascinating to just kind of pick your brain. Um, but maybe to start, um, if you wouldn't mind just saying a little bit about you, who you are, where you come from, your background, and, and what got you interested in, in the work that you're doing. Yeah, first, thanks for having me on here, Jason. It's uh, super nice to be chatting with you. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a historian of religion. Actually, uh, I, I studied uh, at uh, the universities of Copenhagen and Uppsala, and then I've lived in many places around the world and sort of studied different kinds of culture, basically. Um, and uh, then uh, the North, North European heritage has always sort of been a bit of an interest. I started being very interested particularly in the pre-Christian um, uh, knowledge systems and mythologies and, and all that. And then uh, I became um, uh, have become more in interested in the folklore from a slightly more general perspective uh, historically um, as basically an expression of what is sometimes called indigenous knowledge today. I don't use the word term indigenous when we're talking about majority white people, but uh, a similar kind of knowledge as what is typically called indigenous knowledge today, traditional knowledge, I, I call it. Uh, and yeah, so that's my background to think with that stuff. And when we are thinking about um, the traditional knowledge of those people who have ma mainly been racialized as white people, then we are uh, also brought into uh, consideration and brought into uh, thinking about a lot of, actually a lot of the ugly stuff from history that we sort of have to sort kind of deal with in the process of approaching this material. Uh, so. So yeah, so that's that's kind of my I came I come from an an, an academic angle, uh, but it's also a kind of academia that uh, today uh, steps into what scholars would sometimes call an insider view, uh, which is basically that that today uh, a lot of cultural scholarship uh, um, has a less othering. A way of uh, you could say less arrogant way of of uh, trying to understand the knowledge forms of practitioners of different kinds. So what what got you? Do you have? I mean, sometimes this is a big question, but do you have any idea of of what sparked that interest in the first place? Was that something you were interested in since childhood, or there was maybe some event or series of events that really got you interested in that? Well, yeah, I'm. I'm a, I think I was interested in religiosity since childhood. I mean, some people are just a little bit more have a stronger inclination in that direction than others, um, and particularly the interest in North European heritage actually also came from the fact that um, I grew up in a f fairly secular family, uh, but we also have a bit of background in a kind of a North European kind of Christianity that actually focused very much on, for instance, the pre-Christian mythology and these kind of things. It's kind of weird. You have a form of Christianity in Denmark that basically sees the Nordic myths and the Nordic story world as 
kind of the old testament of our people almost so i kind of grew up with these stories and and mythologies and and you know heroes and gods and these kind of things in 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 uh, being told as stories basically uh, and that of course also enforced my my interest in in these things and then you know being a young man you know like many people today i've been a bit of a seeker and uh studied a bit of occultism here and uh other uh the uh, spiritualities of of other peoples and and these things have then sort of coalesced into this uh this idea or perspective that i'm trying to open now of basically thinking indigenous people of or indigenous knowledge of majority population or traditional knowledge of majority populations So this is another quite big question, and and you don't necessarily need to answer. Um, but you know, it's interesting because you brought up this point of of the the difference between even how we use words, something like indigenous or, or traditional. Um, but often, I think a lot of people like use that word other. Uh, I think from a lot of the cultures of, of people who are listening to this. Even that word indigenous, like it, it kind of conjures up this idea of people in a faraway land, very remote. Um, and yet at the same time, like we were also mentioning a bit of this word connectivity. I mean, at our root, we all are the same people and, and everyone comes from some sort of tradition. Um, so it, it's kind of a big question, but speaking specifically about European traditions or, or even Nordic traditions, are, are you able to, to kind of give the audience a, a bit of a, of a history or background of, of kind of how you trace those things? Like what, what are the roots? What are the traditions? Uh, um, you know, and, and again, it's a huge question because it depends how far back we want to go. But, but yeah. like what, what would have been at the roots of, of bringing up what we would now call something like uh, you know, European traditions or, Nor- or Nordic myth? Uh, like what is, the, what is the root of that? You know what, man? I actually try to focus a little bit away from this very historic focus where you would say, okay, so the people in Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, they kind of belong to the same language cluster, which is a subcluster of the Germanic language family, and we have related cultures, and that can be derived back to a general Germanic culture that has Indo-European roots, perhaps, and all these things. Um, I'm, I'm trying to focus a little bit away from from this historic notion of roots, <clears throat> and to actually focus more on a uh, roots as something that is in our relation to landscapes, basically. Um, there's a story from a um, an Icelandic saga in which uh, a man called uh, Thorolf Mostarskeg, he travels from Norway to Iceland, which at that point was empty or virtually empty, perhaps, though a couple of Irish hermits who were sitting and meditating on some mountain here and there, but it, it, it was generally just an empty space, Iceland. So they came there, uh, people from Norway, around a thousand years ago. And when you look at how they approached this land, you see that it was intensely ceremonialized. Even from leaving Norway, there were certain things they had to bring, <clears throat> certain things that had to be treated in specific ways, and they had a specific ceremony approaching the coastline of Iceland and about settling. So Thorolf, he did all these 
ceremonies that that you could say are you could say they are ceremonies of rooting yourself in that completely new land where nobody lived before um and uh, Thorolf did that and there were immediately there were holy sites and uh different sacralized landscapes around him that he related to when he died as an old man uh, a person from his household had a vision seeing Thorolf actually going into a mountain and being greeted by his ancestors inside that mountain but that was in Iceland Thorolf's ancestors didn't live in Iceland they lived in Norway <laughs> he was already that rooted in that land after having lived lived there perhaps the last 30 years of his life or something like that uh, he was already that rooted in that land that the, his his ancestors were receiving him into that mountain where he lived close by right now my point is here that that this man here who has a powerful animist perception of the world he is he doesn't need to think so much about a specific historic route he is relating to a specific landscape and he has a functional animus technology that roots him in into relation with that landscape and that's not to say that he 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 doesn't land in iceland as a complete tabula rasa without anything in his mind he has a culture and way of figuring things out but my point here is just that when we're talking about uh, for instance, if we talk about North European traditional animism or Nordic animism, um, the point is in the relating to the landscape and, rather than in a specific cultural tradition. And I think that if you speak to many indigenous groups, they would probably say similar things that uh, many Aboriginal Australians, for instance, talk about how law uh, is... Uh, inscribed in the land so a specific area of land a specific um, yeah area a specific bioregion perhaps or uh, an area around a river or uh, a forest something that has in itself law that uh, that uh, people know how to listen to and then inscribe their social uh, system their society their culture is basically dependent on listening to that law inscribing that law in their culture and i think that with a the world that we live in today where so many of us are <clears throat> in like diaspora we are we are living in a different place than our great great grandparents typically today most of us a few of us live a little bit closer to where our great great grandparents lived but uh but we aren't that many most humans today live in in uh, uh some sort of of uh, diaspora if you if you think them in the context of their cultural roots and i think in that situation in the world that we live in that it's important that we that we calibrate our notion of roots into rootedness to land uh, and make that the focus so uh, <laughs> i don't know if it was a cheeky answer to what you were saying um but like what i'm thinking about let me just give you another answer <laughs> so, so what i'm thinking about is most when i'm talking about nordic animism is actually uh, basically, a, 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 I'm thinking about a North European biospace 
that has fluffy borders. I kind of intended this because of what I was just saying. I kind of intended it to have kind of fluffy borders. You know, you could and you could have delimited it in different ways. You could have said South Danish animism or English animism or Baltic animism or uh, you know whatever you want it to say. But it was uh, I basically wanted a a framing sort of around my own general bioregion that could basically enable talking about both the cultural heritage, which is a cultural reservoir for a lot of like settler people in diaspora situations in in for instance in colonized continents they need to be able to uh, have access to and and on build their contemporary self-image and understanding with some of the material that is connected to their roots uh, but also basically to to think about those those people that are in that space today in northern europe and think how whatever their wherever their great grandparents lived which might have been in syria or uh, somalia or uh, or wherever and and thinking yourself in with that landscape you know i want to make these kind of tools available that doesn't make sense what i'm saying Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. You you use this word uh, animism. Uh, what what does that mean to you? How would you describe that to to someone who maybe isn't so familiar with with what that word means? Yeah, uh, animism is, is a word that has like many words that have to, has anything to do with culture. Uh, it's it's a word that has a bit of a problematic history. Um, originally, it kind of meant a childish state of, na uh, you know, nature where humans think that there are spirits everywhere, um, or, or something of that sort. But and that was then considered an infantile state of uh, of uh, human worldview that would then evolve into more adult ways of being. For instance, contemporary Euro modernity. Uh, but. Uh, Today, a lot of people, a lot of scholars, and also a lot of uh, different kinds of practitioners and indigenous peoples have been r taking back the uh, the concept of animism uh, and uh, are defining it in, in, in a different way. Um, for instance, uh, there's an important scholar named Graham Harvey, he's an English uh, scholar of, of religion who defines animism as... Uh, I always forget his, his, his specific wording of his definition. I think I need to learn it by heart. Uh, but anyway, the point is that he says that there are people around us, not all of whom are, whom are human, but all of whom are deserving of respect. Right? So, as humans, we are inscribed in wider networks of relating and community uh, with other people and persons who aren't necessarily humans, but who also uh, deserve our respect somehow. Also, perhaps, if and when we are violent to them, then that is a problem that we need to somehow deal with which is is characteristic of animist culture if you if you uh, um, many animist cultures survive as hunters and that demands specific 
practices of of respect towards the the beings that are perhaps being killed in order to be eaten you you mentioned this really uh, interesting idea um and I, I wonder if you can speak more about it but um that these traditions uh, i forget exactly how you said it but that the they're they're in relation to 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 the landscape to the lands that the lands actually have a significant power they they influence they they could maybe even dictate traditions cosmovisions worldviews um i remember when i yeah and and again i i use this word quite loosely but but this idea of shamanism where people who are connected to the earth who who have a worldview that that as you said recognizes other forms of life uh, generically maybe spirit or spirits uh, but i was in mongolia and and uh, i was in this very isolated uh, part uh, just nothing around and 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 uh, i spent some time with with these people called the reindeer people mm-hmm. and it was the first time where i very much felt the 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 power of of this shamanic tradition in relation to the land i could see how much the land influenced that tradition and that world view that that mm-hmm. that cosmology and and a, a deep respect and reverence of the land and a deep respect of the power of the land that the magic of the land so that's something that 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 very much resonates with me is that something you can talk more about because i in in, in so many traditional cultures they do there there is a deep influence from the land even for example where i've been living the the last number of years in the amazon so much of their cosmovision is directly related to the land the the animals of the land the 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 the, the feel of the jungle the 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 life and death cycles of the jungle and it, it obviously very much influences their 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 worldview and then for the last few years changing environments to to the andes which is almost another world i mean very sparse kind of life com- compared to the jungle huge mountains you know very high up very thin air and again that tradition it's it's a there's similarities but it's a very different cosmovision that that's very much based on their land too you know you know so much that they they even have names for the mountains the mountains have powers they're they're protectors they're 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 medicine and it you know again just small example but very much shaped by by their landscape mm-hmm. yeah i think that when you look at probably any traditional culture uh you find a like a web of different kinds of intersecting land forms of land connectedness uh and when i say land connectedness what do i mean by that well i think it can be many things but one thing that's it's a very um clear direct uh expression of land connectedness is that if we have the animist idea that there are others around us then we are connected to these others we are in social contracts in bonds of reciprocity in family kinship tie in all kinds of different forms of relation with these beings around us uh, one very remarkable way of doing that is kinship 
to basically, we, and this is sometimes called totemism, that people say we are a group of people here and we are in relation with Raven. Raven is a our kin. Uh, so there's a kinship group that um, <coughs> consists of ravens and humans. And these are considered as sharing in nature somehow in this kinship group. This is a, not a, an arbitrary example. It's an example of a specific kinship relation that I've been working with here in Northern Europe where there has been a raven kinship culture that is somewhat similar in some ways to the raven kinship culture or totemism that you find in the northwest pacific coast of north america where there is a cluster of peoples that have these raven totem clans and raven myths and so on and they're very similar to what you find in in uh, pre-christian north european mythology uh, so that's a, that this is a case of one form of land connectedness but really it can take many forms and kinship with animals is just one expression because there can be how you relate to specific landscape formations is a river perhaps a deity uh, perhaps this river is that deity which is the origin of a royal house in Nigeria or Sweden that, that there is a, a, a river whose deity, whose god, who's, who is divine, and in its divinity it is the source of perhaps uh, a royal house, and thereby perhaps seen as the source of the social order in that area. Uh, it could also be the changing seasons that we are in relation with. Summer and winter is not something that is just mechanically ticking by in an animist perception of the world. It's something that humans are participating in. And uh, something that animism, animists have always understood, and which humans on a large scale is in the process of remembering again, uh, is that the world and the world's functioning in a way that uh, that makes it into a harmonious place for humans to live that is not just a given that we can just take it actually takes human effort it takes human uh, investment of uh, of uh, doing things in certain ways in order for the world to not basically descend into collapse right now we are on our way into the the biggest collapse in the history of life for 65 million years, right? That's because we forgot that humans need to participate in a mutual contributions and reciprocity with the world around us. We kind of, we put that out of, out of our mind for a couple of hundred years. We told ourselves a myth that the landscapes the, around us, the world, is just a dead thing lying out there. And guess what? That kills the world that we conceptualize it as a dead thing in a very literal sense. So, uh, yeah, so, th so there are different kinds of, of uh, land connectedness. Seasons here I mentioned, also light cycles. The idea that this is, like in, in North America, this is not experienced as much, much as in Northern Europe. Uh, but if you lived in Siberia, you have, you have likely experienced it that it is significantly darker in winter than it is in summer so the shift the shifts of light in the land that you live that's something that's a very 
uh, it's a very prominent feature of your life, basically. So you see that that uh, in North European traditional knowledge, there's a lot of relating with light. There's a lot of burning pyres at specific times of year, or carrying torches, or lighting Christmas candles on a, on a tree that you put somewhere, and all these kind of uh, things, which layered in them, even if they, if they might be very contemporary practices, like lighting lights on a Christmas tree, layered in these kind of practices are... Um, Nord, I would say Nordic animist n notions of relating to light in specific ways. So yeah, so the, the, that that's kind of how I would like outline land connectedness in a in a rough way. Are you able to speak a bit more about that 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 raven kinship or the, those kind of raven totem groups? Um, because I think that would be a fascinating example to people of just how something like an animal can play such a, a, a big part. Um, you know, again, I think a lot of people listening to this have, have worked with, uh, for example, plants that, that come from the Amazon. And, uh, you know, and you have groups of people, you have traditions that are maybe similarly aligned with with a jaguar or an anaconda. and. And, and in a way, like you said, there's a certain symbology there, there's a certain kinship, but, but there's, always, there's also an actual medicine that, that's going along with that. And not just a physical medicine, but a medicine of spirit that, um, that really plays a, a huge part in people's lives. Yeah, yeah, the, like, the, like the animal kinship is... is uh, Obviously, it's a huge field that you could really go into and you could talk about a number of different animals that have had traditionally some sort of kinship relation with, with humans. In, for instance, in Northern Europe, uh, ravens are particularly interesting because they are, uh, uh, because raven is a trickster figure. And that is very closely aligned with what you see in Siberian, specific Siberian uh, cultures close to the uh, Kola and uh, Isle and close to Alaska and uh, down through the Pacific coast in America towards uh, um, the, the, the northern part of, of the United States. So these people who live in that area, they typically they have the idea that Raven is a trickster an ancestor, a shaman, uh, and a totem. Uh, shaman, totem. I think that was it. Um, now, the interesting thing is that if you look at North European tradition, you find that the the raven god, which is called Oven, Odin, which is sometimes basically named the raven god, um, that he is a, a trickster, an ancestor, uh, and a shaman. Uh, and a totem uh, relation in, in, in a similar way. So it's very closely aligned. It looks to me as if the raven motif, as you find it, for instance, in Scandinavia and England, uh, is basically a part of a raven motif that you find around the northern hemisphere, basically around the Arctic Rim. So you find it among Inuits, you find it among Native Americans, you find it among these Siberians, possibly in other groups. So uh so uh, this kinship between raven and human that is sometimes visually imaged as a human face for instance that is inside or perhaps for instance a raven mask so if you have 
uh, indigenous Americans of the northwest Pacific coast, sometimes you'll have a raven dancer who's wearing a raven mask, and that can open this mask. It's a transformation mask, and it has a human face inside. Interestingly, you'll find the same motif in, in North European archaeology. You see raven shapes, raven shapes brush, raven-shaped brooches that has a human face inside. That symbolizes the entanglement. It's a, it's, it's a very literal image of the connectivity between humanity and nature, a piece of nature, raven. So, um, so what I think has been the case in Northern Europe is that this is one totemic connection that has been there. Uh, it is historically very visible because it has been the uh, the totem relation of powerful groups, uh, powerful families, royal families. So that means that you can read in chronicles about people who are carrying a flag with a raven on it in in wars and these kind of things, um, which doesn't necessarily mean that the raven only means war. That's <laughs> not necessarily just what it means. Um, it just means that there's a group of people who are seeing their power in association with that particular uh, being. Now, Raven is also important because it is a trickster, and therefore there is a, a there's a trickster uh, voice in Raven that some believe that we need today. There is we need some of that trickster genius in order to cope with the way that our, in a sense, very trickstery nature as humans have made a, an awful mess of things. We have messed up the entire world in our gluttony and our uh, thoughtlessness. In, in a sense, we have acted in a way that's comparable to how Raven acts in many uh, American stories. Uh, and now we need the Raven genius to get us out of the, this pickle that we're in again. So the raven has that trickster uh, function in it. I seem to remember that there is a prophecy in relation with South America. You might uh, even know what I'm talking about, relating to the um, the condor and the eagle, uh, where uh, some shaman from is it Peru or something like that is talking about how the eagle represents a specific kind of power, and the condor uh, has that. A similar trickster-like role as you see in in Raven. Um, the thing is that that uh, they are what's it called now? Um, birds that eat carrion. Uh, they and that means that they that that is part of their trickster nature, that they eat something that is inverted. It's it's disgusting for for other people, right? Carrion. Uh, and it also makes them a uh, a symbol of the trans uh, the transgression of the uh, the barrier between life and death, where an, uh, a bird like an eagle is much more a symbol of power. It's it's uh, uh, a, a bird of prey that you know descends in cinematically aesthetic violence and kills something and eats it, uh, which is why, for instance, many. Uh, uh, Empires and, and, and great nations who want to portray their power, they have, uh, they, they would typically choose 
eagles before they choose birds like crows and ravens as their crest, for instance, right? Um, and uh, which is an old tradition. The Romans had an eagle uh, on had eagles on their standards. The Americans today still have that eagle standard, and and, and they they got that from the same the same part. Uh, or they got that from the, that tradition. So the, the, there's a tradition of, of imaging that bird in this way, and there's some sort of a an interesting relation actually between eagle and raven. Also, when you look at the European tradition, that that the raven is very much there. It's very visible in some of our source material, for instance, of the of the Viking Age, as this shamanic ancestor deity of specific powerful groups uh, and uh, and then the eagle is also there but um, yeah I was partly inspired by uh, a couple of British scholars who basically suggested uh, I don't know if it's this whole naming our time as a something seen is getting a little bit too much these days but but they suggested to name our time the raven scene that period where we need the voice of raven to to revalorize our relation with with land so so i kind of tried to to manifest that by basically creating a contemporary raven flag where i looked at uh, uh, a lot of archaeological imagery of the North European raven and uh, I made drawings and I had some friends or graphic designers who helped me get it so it looks cool and then we basically created a flag to basically say connectivity um, in 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 our time <laughs> connectivity in our time and um, yeah so um did that, that answer your question? Yeah. You were speaking about something that, that, that's very interesting, which um, I, I think in a, a lot of traditional cultures, I mean, maybe even almost all, there is this idea of a trickster, uh, and, and it's often associated with the shaman. Um, the shaman is the one who, in a way, kind of shakes our worldview, and sometimes they have to do some outlandish things or, or shake us, whether it's through a ritual or a ceremony or uh, something that really begins to lift the veil in a way and allow us to see the world in a much deeper way. And, but it's interesting because often that's something that, that we seem to have forgotten about. Like I think many people come to these paths, and maybe it's because they're very influenced by these more Eastern traditions, like the, the enlightened person, the, the, the one who's calm in all aspects, the one who says little or just imparts wisdom. Uh, but that was a very different worldview from a lot of these these more traditional cultures. As you said, they they looked at things in terms of relation. There, there, there was good and evil. There was forces of good, forces of bad that they often had to fight to bring into order. Uh, and this idea of a trickster was very, very important. Um, is that something maybe you can speak a little bit more of? Because it does seem to be such a common theme in, in shamanic paths and in, in these traditions. I mean... I'm kind of, even as you mentioned, like the, these myths like Odin and Loki, you know, I mean, so much of, of that history was this dance, this pull, this 
different forces trying to achieve the, the same goal, and yet at the same time coming at it from these very different uh, ways of, of doing it, and yet it seemed to be trying to impart something, to teach something to us. Yeah, oh boy, that's an, that's an interesting and important, important question. Um, yeah, I think we need we we are living all well I don't, we might be living in a raven scene we're certainly living in a trickster time uh a time where the, there's a great need for tricksters uh one way that you see it i think is that we have gone completely medieval in our relation to media it's very much uh hum, um stand up comedians who are actually saying uh they're actually the ones being doing something that resembles uh, critical journalism. Critical journalism kind of evaporated, doesn't really exist anymore. But stand-up comedians, the tricksters, the clowns, they're the ones who can actually say powerful truths. Um, and I, I th so I think that that is, is just one very symptomatic aspect of that we live in this, this uh, uh, age with an enormous demand for that. And I think that what you talk about is... In a sense, I think it is a very deep truth about reality that that uh, stuff like humor, for instance, or clowning, or inversions, or transgressions, they are very, very necessary. And uh, they're necessary for a number of reasons. One of the reasons is that if you have two things here and you want to create relation between them, then a transgression is necessary. That, that, that you have to go out of one category and be in an interspace at some point and go into another category if you want any kind of relation to happen in the world. Now that is the reason that in almost all traditional cultures and animism uh, you find that tricksters have very important roles. You find that humor plays an important role uh, where uh, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm inspired partly by Tyson Junkerporter, this Aboriginal Australian thinker, uh, and he talks about how a certain element of humor is, is is deeply necessary in order for our minds to basically uh, attain some level of of um, connection, basically with what we're trying to understand. So if you're trying to communicate something and it's boring as flip then you're actually not creating relation with it. Um, I think it is a... It, it's also... This sometimes makes a bit of a problem uh, when, for instance, um, internet spaces, when, when, when humor gets banned or gets too... In my view, sometimes too difficult in internet spaces or we get so afraid of stepping on someone's toes that we even stop trying to be funny at all. I mean, I tried to be funny a couple of days in a Facebook thread, and I'm not sure I really succeeded. I'm not sure the person that I was, I was, who, um, that I was com commenting on actually really appreciated it, but I tried, you know, I possibly failed, uh, but, but, um, uh, no, I didn't. I didn't get any negative uh, feedback on it. But, but uh, I mean, we 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 do need we do need that aspect quite a lot. And that is 
actually serious. Uh, I think we, because if we don't, then we risk uh, a world where transgressions also between different persons become very difficult. Um, and tricksters, they live in that interspace. They live in that space between uh, between different categories. That's why we behave in crazy ways of new, on New Year's Eve, because it's in the interspace between one year and another. That's why we behave in crazy ways on bachelor's nights, because it's the interspace between two important social systems, being unmarried and being married. Um, and uh, historians of religions call that liminality, and it has to be, it has to be there. Uh, and it's, but but it's difficult. Like, I mean, when you look at, t take that example I started with, their uh, characteristic of our time, stand-up comedians. They play an important role. If you look at these stand-up comedians, the ones that are really good. And you see them in a uh, in a serious uh, in a serious discussion where somebody's really trying to challenge them. Try to look at a guy like Trevor Noah, who's a stand-up comedian, in 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 kind of sharp debate debates with perhaps a political opponent on uh, on YouTube or something. The guy has an IQ of 140 or something. He is sharp as a razor. <laughs> this is just to say. Humor is not easy. It's difficult, and uh, and uh, you know, but 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 we need it, and 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 it 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 also requires a bit of uh, courage, perhaps, to try to be funny but fail, um, and uh, yeah, yeah, good. You you spoke about something else that that I think is very fascinating. Um, which gets back to to this animistic worldview, to this interconnectivity, to this relational, this reciprocal um, idea, which you were, you were talking about what many people would would refer to or call the, the climate crisis and 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 even kind of mentioning this idea that that some of that has perhaps come about because we've forgotten that interconnectedness, we've forgotten that reciprocal or uh, and relational aspect that that everything does have a cost that that nothing is free uh, everything that we do there's there's something that's you know in the more eastern way that there's a karmic relation to it um, and that ultimately we can't just take and take and take if we just take and take and take then something becomes unhealthy the environment but also we become unhealthy because we are in relation to the environment and it's also, uh, I think, a very traditional or indigenous worldview, these ideas of reciprocity of relationship. And it's an interesting thing that I see that um, a lot of times in response to a perceived crisis, uh, such as the world is ending or, you know, we're killing all of life, there's often this kind of extreme view that, that humans are the problems, that, that we're parasites and, and that the world would be back to the Garden of Eden if we were just gone, which is very antithetical to traditional worldviews. Because again, it's seen that man or humanity has an integral part in this, this system of nature. Um, in the Amazon, for example, where I spent a lot of time, uh, they wouldn't say that the, the jungle was just completely wild. They would actually say that 
that that humanity has its footprint it has its imprint it it takes a little bit of this and it moves it over here it sees this as medicine so it begins to cultivate it in a wider space um, for example there there's a medicine you you you've probably heard of called ayahuasca which which part of it is a vine that grows up a tree and it's it's very beautiful but like the nature of the vine is eventually it will kill its host that's its nature um, but if if the the vine is is pruned is cut is used as medicine then it can actually save the tree and then eventually the vine grows back and and that relational aspect then continues that there's kind of a harmony which in a way everything is served by that uh, and, and so just kind of pointing out again this this kind of this relational aspect between humanity and nature and and it seems to be something we we often forget about these ideas of reciprocity of relationship and and also kind of this idea of going to extremes um i guess the question is is something along the lines of of can you speak more about that idea of of again the relationship between humans and and their worldview and and i guess nature in that way because in so many of the, these traditions that's it's it's something that's literally built into the cosmovision is again this relationship between humanity and land and that that always has to be in some sort of right relationship and it, and again kind of going back to this idea of of a, of a pull and push almost this trickster element that, that we have to i forget the word you use like something has to be infringed in order for that relationship to be able to come into right relationship mm. yeah um where to start on this i think like our our whole notion of nature that there is a part of reality that's called nature and it's separate from our culture in many indigenous uh, groups uh, or animist groups you actually don't find that separation you just find and we would then t tend to think oh so they are living in nature but actually it's the opposite they're living in culture to them culture is just much more universal they don't have a part of reality that's called nature often they won't have a have a a, a word that corresponds to our word nature perhaps you can say stuff like in the bush and that would mean you know it, it but going into that bush you are often still in a very cultural space in a very social space because there are these others in that bush that that uh, that you can exchange with uh, and that you need to be in 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 relationship with however in in the colonial encounter something very specific happened and that was that europeans want to take ownership over specific parts of land and so the idea came about or was somehow invented that in order to actually own land you need to be an agriculturalist uh, you need to improve improve the land in order to own it which weirdly might actually be an idea that somehow stems from an animist root somewhere but that's not so important in that point in this uh, situation here the idea was just that that idea came to then be weaponized to saying that people living for instance in the Amazon they are like wild beings they're like parrots and howl howler monkey monkeys running around between the forests or between the trees where in actual fact 
it would be much closer to reality to say that there is a piece of humanity there that has a very um, expanded knowledge tradition of how to take care of that land and that's actually a very active thing that's going on and there's patterns of burning and patterns of uh, uh, different kinds of agricultural like activities and 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 pruning and doing specific stu- stuff to that area which is uh, culturally tr- transmitted but that has been tended to be overlooked so uh, I think many indigenous groups are very much anthropocentric. They see humanity as very central to creation somehow. Uh, humanity as a caretaker. Humanity as, as something that that is needed, in fact, to, to take care of the world. And in that idea might actually be be rooted in some sort of realization, I think, of human humanities rather incredible destructive potential because uh, this is not actually the first time in history that we have seen humanity be rather destructive to nature Uh, when humanity spread across the the globe what you actually see on every single continent with a possible sort of exception of Africa but on every single other continent you see that at the point humanity arrives if this is the biodiversity or the presence of big mammals, then after humanity has been there for a short time, big mammals disappear, uh, which is basically because humans are ferocious hunt- hunters. And uh, so, like giant uh, sloths and giant bears and giant deer and, and all these mammoths and all these beings that were dispersed over over the world after the the uh, this kind of what is it called post ice age uh, fauna um that was basically uh, almost eradicated by humanity when humanity spread and i think that humanity's that that traditional knowledge uh, and animism represents some level of realization that whoopsie daisy we can actually you know mess up things fairly badly if we don't you know just take care a little bit so and this is why you find that that people in in the amazon or in australia that that there are even parts of their traditional knowledge that go out and impact landscapes in ways that in fact imitate the presence of some of these big uh, mammals that have played the role of keystone species. A keystone species is a species that's particularly important to uphold uh, biodiversity in, in, in a specific area. So in some cases traditional uh, knowledge practices and indigenous, in indigenous groups has basically, for instance, uh, what do you call it, um, periodic burning of specific areas and so on, that basically it does some of the same things to the land, I think, as some of the key, the keystone species do. So it's a way of, of, of humanity of trying to realize, okay, we need to modify the, the destructive potential and keep the world alive. And I think that when you sometimes find the, the, the this very uh, pessimistic view of humanity, 
uh, I'm sometimes thinking like, what you know, it seems very self-defeating somehow because so should we just drink poison all of us? Like would that be the solution? Like it like as like as as a realistic suggestion, you know, it's 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 an, it isn't actually a, an, an absurd idea, you know, and I think that when you if you evolve a into an 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 adult way of thinking about the world i don't think it is an option to suggest that and i think that that uh, that uh, indigenous culture and animism represents such an adult way of in trying to cope with or with the destructive potential of humanity interesting i was reminded of a story in the in the ecuadorian amazon there's a group of people called the shuar and kind of talking about how these destructive principles are built into the nature of humans, but also how there's a remedy built into the cultural system. And the Shuar would say the, the, the fundamental role of, of man, of, of men, uh, is that they, they hunt animals and they chop wood, which were two very, very important roles in, in, their, in their culture. Uh, they needed to hunt in order to eat, and they needed to to chop down trees to have the wood to to be able to make fires to to cook the meat. Um, but they would say that 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 men left unchecked will hunt all of the animals and they'll <clears throat> chop down all of the trees. And so the role of the woman, uh, which is interesting, uh, it's just one moment, Jason. Just one. Cherie, was it somebody for me? Ah, okay, okay. Sorry, S sorry. It was just somebody was just ringing on the door, and uh, yeah, I thought it was for me. Okay, yeah, no problem. Yes, sorry. And and they would say the the role of the woman, interestingly, is more of this idea of wisdom. The 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 role of the woman is to tell the man when enough animals have been killed and when enough trees have been chopped down. So it's this interesting way of one kind of recognizing, as you were saying, this this inherent destructive principle of humanity, but then also having a, a built-in system within their culture. Of being able to to negate that, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that makes a lot of sense, and and you probably find these stories in 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 many um, expressions and in many forms. I think the the North European uh, tales have very strong cautionary tales about what is called the Ragnarok. The the ba which is basically an eco prophecy of social and ecological collapse and and when connectivity fails in 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 the universe in in the cosmos then then um, everything collapses and the task of humans in that uh, from that perspective is to maintain connectivity to keep the world uh in uh, in yeah mutually beneficial transformative web of relation yeah yeah so uh, kind of going back to to more of this idea of, of nordic anim animism and, and and also myth um and i, I don't know I, th I think it's something you're familiar with but but some of these kind of uh creation stories i mean you mentioned uh odin and and loki um some of these norse gods of freya is that something you could, uh, if you're familiar with, maybe share a bit with the audience? Because 
Another one of the things that I find very important in in a lot of traditional societies are these myths, these stories that it's seen that they're not just kind of in a way cute stories that are meant to be told to children to to entertain them or to put them to bed. But uh, for example, one teacher of mine would say these stories actually contain healing codes that are actually Mm. built into the stories. And much like you were saying with the raven, like it's meant to impart in us something, uh, Hmm. you know, certainly knowledge, information, uh, morals, perhaps, ways of being, but even potentially beyond that, that there's deeper wisdom that when we're imbued with those stories, they actually become a part of us and they can help Hmm. to, to allow us to live our lives in a way that is much more in harmony. Um, and, and I think some people are, are probably familiar with these stories of Odin or they, they've heard of Odin or I don't know, maybe they've seen the movie Thor and so they're, they're familiar with them. Um, but is that something you'd be able to, to speak a bit about, uh, some of those archetypes and, and the Nordic gods and kind of what their roles are and, and uh, maybe what you feel is the role of those stories and, and, mm-hmm. and, and the importance of, of those archetypes? Well... I think myths are stories that serve to create connectivity that like I think humanity a little bit like I was just talking about with the eradication of the uh, these mammals I think humanity has a deep recognition of our potential to fall out of connectivity and a story like the one I was just talking about the uh, the the Ragnarok story which is a prophecy about failing connectivity that's a very strong example of it but if you have a story about say a deity uh, say the god of thunder Thor then this these mythologies they are I think they are uh, allowing us to understand and thereby perhaps inscribe us in relation with deep patterns of how reality is composed and how uh, yeah, how the world works. That's the, that's the objective of these stories. This is also the reason that these stories aren't necessarily always all that consistent between them. So it's not like if you read, uh, uh, you know, and and or see an ongoing um, TV series on Netflix, you're gonna find that if uh, that there will be consistency. If something happens in episode three, then in episode five that has happened. So now that there's a different conditions, uh, you know, and it, and it will be consistent in that way. That's characteristic of contemporary story stories. In mythic stories, creation stories, that isn't all that important. What's important is 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 the way that they that these stories create relation. For instance, by the way that they are. Um, they can give shape to ceremony sometimes so one example of this that I have I have worked uh, on these last couple of years is that there is a a story about um, there's a a legend about a king uh, called King Aun of Sweden King Aun the Old so he was in this story he starts sacrificing his own sons to Odin in order to live forever, and that was that was boggling me. Like, wh- what? It, he and he sacrificed nine sons in order to just go on living forever, 
uh, and it, it, I wondered, what is the point of that story? Why, why is, you know, what is it that it's is doing to us? What is it that we're learning from? But the point of that story is, first of all, it's a cautionary tale. Aun killing his own sons in order to egotistically live forever is, in a sense, an image of of humanity that is uh, killing its own descendants. It's comparable to uh, some of the the uh, discourse that you find from contemporary indigenous Americans who are talking about being a good ancestor. Like this king here, he's the worst imaginable ancestor. He's actually murdering his own descendants. And in doing that, the world is falling apart. Now, and I think that this falling apart is comparable to the Ragnarok. We could say that we are like Aun. We are in our overconsumption similar to this cannibal king who just wants comfort for himself and therefore murders his, his, his own descendants. Now what that story is in a sense prescribing ceremonially is that it these the sacrifices of these nine sons actually mark out a period of time and when that period of time ha- has passed we ought to actually celebrate have grand celebrations for the purpose of invoking connectivity back into the world because of this ongoing rupture if we are like Aun who ends up in this king he ends up lying in his bed just drinking milk out of a baby bottle because he can't move he he goes on living and living but he ends up completely incapacitated in in, in paralysis and this is a kind of an image of our uh, humanity today we live in such extreme level of comfort that uh, which is predicated on this 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 violence but then what happens is that the, the in, in Nordic animist uh, reality there's a lot of relating to these cycles of light that I mentioned before what happens is that the Sun and the moon sometimes align in their cycles it happens a little bit too often, but it also happens with an eight-year in- interval. Um, and these eight years are actually that period with which uh, Aun's sacrifice of his nine sons took place. The thing is, there's some detailed stuff about the counting and medieval counting, which is weird. I'm not going to go into it right now. Just accept that nine sons means eight years. Um and um, and this alignment, you could say it is a healing of the relation between the sun and the moon. So the sun and the moon don't always follow, follow each other. It isn't always, for instance, new moon on the winter solstice. Uh, and like you'll have noticed that, you know, it's not always full moon on your birthday, for instance. Um, but, uh, but sometimes the sun and the moon fall into sync at the beginning of the year. And when that happens, that has been perceived as a a state of healing, a, 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 a state of wholeness. And invoking that wholeness is, in a sense, dictated or prescribed by this 
grotesque and rather gruesome myth of an old king who's murdering his own sons to live for live forever right so that's a case of a, a piece of mythology that uh that could be seen to to basically prescribe specific ceremony to call on healing we we actually kind of gathered a, a group of people to um to uh, make the announcement of this particular of the particular time of this these healing ceremony which is this year now 2023 which is why it's very present in my mind because we've been uh, talking a lot about this but yeah so that's that 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 is one example of how a a piece of mythology can can um work i think from an animist perspective um deities um i think that um that you know there are different kinds of animism in different parts of the world and that kind of anim- animism that has these kind of deities like odin and thor and freya and these gods um that are a little bit like the olympic gods that is something you find in specific locations around the world you find it in in northern europe or other parts of europe uh, you also find it in west africa uh systems such as voodoo santeria and and in brazil candomblé they operate with a similar form of deities uh you also find it in china you also find it in hawaii i think in mesoamerica you also have these these kind of olympic let me just call them olympic style deities uh so so that is this is a kind of animism and that is of course also connected to a whole uh system of of re- how to practice religious knowledge and um ancient songs and 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 so on uh, yeah yeah in with with nordic anim, uh, animism and 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 again speaking about this idea of, of relationship to the land and and how much a land plays a role in in developing cosmovisions and and, and ways of being uh, are are there any ways that you would describe that nordic tradition maybe maybe that's separated from other traditions or things that are very unique to it uh or even characteristics because i think it's it's just it's something that a lot of people aren't familiar with uh, so w- when they hear that 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 phrase nordic tradition i mean there may be some vague you know kind of yeah maybe they believe in odin or thor but but i don't think there's a deep grasp of of like maybe what that looked like or what that felt like or 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 or, or what those cosmovisions were 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 embodying or, or what the what the daily practices were what the rituals were what what kind of the the tangible things that, that, that could you could really look at that and say wow that's that's really of those people that's of that land it's something that's very very tangible in that way yeah like animisms are always they're always culture and region or landscape specific So if you have an East African animism it will have certain specific and certain things will be important and certain practices will express respect and and so on uh, and if you have a Kamchatkan Siberian animism then it might be something completely different um what Graham Harvey points out uh this important animist scholar is that that respect is a 
a very important general, I will almost use the word universal, but let me call it general uh, principle in, in animism. So if you ask about what is characteristic of Nordic animism, then I would say that, that there are specific characteristics, and they might also be a little bit different in different parts of the Nordic region. Stuff like I mentioned here, the raven kinship, that is a historic uh, important part of Nordic animism. There's bear kinship. In, if you go further north in Scandinavia, it's still there. It's rather totemic, actually. Seal kinship. Kinship with pigs. There's a, there's, so there's a specific beings that have a tendency to be, uh, to be considered um, sacred and important. Also sometimes plants. One specific plant that uh, uh, is incredibly important, incredibly central in South Scandinavian animism, and I think also German, I'm not sure if in English, but certainly in this place here, is the elder tree, elder tree, which has an array of practical uses that will blow your mind. I mean, we're talking about hundred and I read a, a little bit about it. Uh, it was a 30-page kind of listing of all its different applications and perhaps 120, 30 different kinds of of medicine, uh, like different ways of viewing it as medicine, perhaps around 40 different culinary uses, used for the wood for utensils, all kinds of things. So that is, a, is an important plan in that space and becomes then an important relation in that space. I think that if you look at the North European, but if you go further north in Scandinavia, I don't think you find that tree so much. And then it, perhaps it's another plant or another uh, that that takes that space. So it's 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 very landscape dependent. I think relating to these uh, shifting lightscapes is very characteristic of Nordic animism. If you live in Northern Europe, you're living in lightscapes that change uh, a lot. Uh, with the with the passing of the year, that then also means that there is a particular relation to the use of fire. So there's been uh, relating to, for instance, practices of making a sacred fire or treating a house hearth as a sacred being in specific ways. These are also characteristic of I think all north northern Europe. Uh, these particular ways of dealing with fire. Um, one particular um, topic that I have become aware of and I really wanted to go into more but I found it a little bit difficult to explore is that when you look at animist practices around the world often you will have some sort of mm, product that people would like to consume and when they consume it together that affirms a connectivity between them. So, uh, tobacco among indigenous Americans, cola nut among specific peoples in West Africa, coffee in East Africa and Ethiopia, uh, sorghum beer perhaps in, 
in uh, South Africa, and so on and so forth uh, in in different countries around the the world. I'm sure if you have lived in in the Amazon, you can probably tell about specific products that they have that they enjoy sharing with each other, but which then also plays an important role, not only creating relation between humans, but also creating relation to landscapes or others in the landscape, right? Now, in Northern Europe, beer has had that role, beer. And beer traditionally has a role that's very similar to the role that tobacco has uh, among indigenous Americans. That thing that, like, uh, people from the Ojibwe, they would probably bring tobacco in hand if they visit an elder. So they bring tobacco as a way of showing we are now... or asserting we are now in a positive relation. When we visit each other today, we bring typically wine. Uh, that's just what's popular today, but uh, but uh, in my father's childhood, when the milkman came by a farm, there would be a big barrel with uh, newly brewed beer standing inside. Uh, so first thing he would do when he came would be to take a, a bit of beer as an, kind of a ceremonial uh, as a manifestation of having entered that that space so uh, and I could go no, go on for a long time this thing with beer is rather fascinating and it, it's it's very like strong and actually beautiful ceremonial aspect which is characteristic of northern Europe now you can see how that is layered inside our contemporary culture without us knowing it drinking beer today is something that we do often and together with our friends and you know if if you and I had met each other in Lisbon uh, you know it, it's possible that you know we would sit have a beer and say cheers and then start chit-chatting it's it's a, it, that would have been a characteristically european thing to do perhaps we would have taken tea it's a similar it's a similar kind of practice you know but but you see how how layered inside standard normative uh, majority culture our animist tradition it's as if it's just below the surface so if we can open and 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 find this animist content then we can um we can reformat parts of our culture in a direction where our culture becomes less destructive for instance to the planet beer today is an industrially mass produced uh, you know, product that uh, people, you know, often abuse it and uh, or drink far too much of it. For instance, people in Northern Europe tend to drink far too much beer. It's become far too available. Uh, and <coughs> but there is this potential, I think, in majority animism. And that, so now I'm talking about. Uh, animism in a slightly wider context than just Nordic animism, but there is this potential, I think, of realizing our normative culture into less destructive patterns. I uh, There was another example of this which actually relates to the Aun myth that I told before. Uh, I spoke to Tyson Juncker-Porter, this uh, Aboriginal philosopher, uh, about uh, about this particular um, this particular myth, and then uh, after I had spoken to him, uh, I suddenly realized I suddenly realized that um, 
we had at the time we had been speaking about QAnon uh, and uh, that whole thing, which a couple of years ago it still felt like it still felt very as a very real threat in our world that that you know U.S. might collapse in weird militias who believe absolutely things that are absolutely bonkers, right? Um, and um, uh, and it, it it just dawned on us that in fact the Aun myth sounds like a real creation story describing something that QAnon believers are sort of failing to articulate with QAnon mythology. Like QAnon mythology is absolutely hilariously weird. Like Hillary Clinton is a kingpin, kingpin of a global sex cult. You know, it's it's absurd, right? Um, but um, the, but what does the mythology actually say? Well, it talks about v- power having exerting violence toward destructive violence on children, on the coming generations. Perhaps QAnon believers are sort of failing to articulate some of the stuff that some of these indigenous Americans are actually trying to articulate. Let's be good ancestors. We are being horrible ancestors. We are being like Aun. We are cannibal ancestors. We're abusing our descendants. So that is a potential of the uh, stuff like the Aun myth. It can lend real, harmonious, positive patterns of relation to stuff that has gone absolutely array. You know, the the what do you say in English? The wheels have when when you go into to uh, um, QAnon mythology, it has gone completely off the track. It's and and uh, if you have a wise and uh, consistent with integrity way of thinking with traditional knowledge, then it has that that potential to basically heal some of the most destructive patterns of thinking that are there in our reality today. It's it's, it's interesting you mentioned the elder tree. Uh, it's actually a tree I've I've begun working with. Uh, it, was, it was actually the the most recent tree really that that I've been working with. And as you said, there there are. It's quite amazing because even different parts of the tree have very different medicine, which is quite rare for a tree. Usually different parts of the tree have a very similar medicine, but it, uh, each part is so different. And, 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 um, and as you said, mm. just truly a host of, of, of medicine within one tree. Are you familiar at all or have you heard anything more just out of curiosity about kind of the, the magical uses? Because in a lot of these northern European traditions, it was considered a tree of magic. Uh, yeah. I think maybe even in Scandinavia or the Germanic traditions, there was this idea of the the Hildemord, the the mother, which is a very even Amazonian way of of looking at trees. They would say every tree has its mother, it has its owner, its spirit, and and that seems like something that was very present in a lot of these traditional European traditions was. There was this idea of spirits, of, of energies that, that, that embodied trees, that embodied aspects of nature that, that could be communicated with. And, and the elder was often, uh, in a way, one of the main trees that, that's, that, that 
some of that knowledge seems to have still it still exists even in present day uh, you know often people will be very maybe mindful around the elder tree or maybe the hawthorn tree like you shouldn't cut it down because then the fairies will come and and even the fairies have a bit of this trickster quality to them they can be they can be very good but they can also do harm and it depends on your relationship to that um is that maybe anything else you you're familiar with uh, with that tree specifically or, or just kind of more of that magical element to, to some of these things yeah i think that from a traditional knowledge perspective i'm not sure that people would or i think that people probably wouldn't distinguish very sharply between what we would call magic and what we would call say conventional medicine the fact that elder flowers uh, can be made into a tea and that tea can can uh, be good if you have a fever uh, that is in a sense part of its agency and that agency is also what is employed in operations that we would perhaps name magic um, I think with with the elder specifically as you say there is this idea of the elder mother um, and uh, and yes, there has been all kinds of practices of, uh, like, you certainly can't defecate under a, uh, an elder tree, or you should take off your hat if you pass by it, or greet it in specific ways, or, um, uh, and cutting it down is a very serious business. The thing is that elder in southern Scandinavia grows all over the place, so sometimes you have to cut it down. If uh, and then there are complex ceremony about that. How how do you how do you do that? Um, to me, it seems that there's been a general idea of trees as sometimes sacred. And uh, if you look at the Scandinavian area, you often find that there would be a sacred tree attached to a farm, uh, and that tree should then be given uh, specific th uh, things, typically beer, uh, on a uh, specific days during the year or something like that. Uh, however, and, and these sacred trees can pretty much be any kind of tree uh, that kind of take up that specific role. The elder tree, it almost seems as if every single uh, kind of uh, a specific elder tree is a sacred tree because it's so charged. Uh, and uh, there are then specific practices around the elder that uh, seems to um, Impart, impart an animist agency, a magic, let's just call it magic, that, for instance, you are... Um, oh, no, it seems... It, are we still online? Yeah, we just cut out for one second, but we're, we're back now. Okay, yeah. cool. I'll just, I'll just get back on track. <laughs> um, so, it's, so, so there, are, there are a number of practices uh, that have this kind of magic nature when it comes to the elder tree. <clears throat> uh, and you know what? There are so many I can't even remember them. But like uh, burning the wood uh, should be good to um, clear a space of ghosts. This is one that just springs into my mind. Um, it has had a very strong healing agency in it, which means that people have had uh, practices of walking up to it and asking it to take over afflictions that they had themselves. So a number of 
vast number of different afflictions you could basically ask the elder to take over um, this elder mother uh, and el sometimes plural elder people that there are some specific peoples living little people living around it could also be dangerous and you could be elder shot a little bit like I think in English you can be fairy shot um, so it would require uh, treat you know treating this this tree in in certain ways it has I think when I've looked at the material it seems to me that the elder tree has a connection to death it has some sort of a connection to death while it it has a um, nature that is very uh, powerfully alive elder trees in, in southern Scandinavia just grow all over the place and they they they, they just come up all over the place so they, they're very kind of powerfully present and they're very alive but they have some sort of relation to 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 death so they have used to for instance if a if a pig died or a piece of cattle died they would perhaps bury it under an elder tree um, I think it also has to uh, something to do with the, the or it not also but that is also con that is connected or based on something about the biology of this tree typically uh, in, uh, it would be like in the old days like you know, even in when I was a kid we would have like a manure behind the, the farm like a big pile of shit pig shit you know <laughs> uh, if a, if an elder tree is planted beside one like a, a manure you know if, if it had been a beech tree it probably wouldn't have been able to to deal with all that nitrogen in in, in the ground because it's too much uh, beside a manure like that but an elder tree is just happy it's just like yeah so so it'll it would just spit out loads of, of, of berries um, and elder berries are actually the slightly poisonous um, not like you know you can't rub an, an arrow on it and, and, and kill a howler monkey with it but but uh, you'll get a little bit of a stomach pain if, if you eat a lot of them raw but then if you if you boil it for just 15 minutes you create elderberry soup and that is very 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 nutritious so it's so there's a lot of like powerful life energy in that weird little tree that that grows beside the manure or you bury a dead pig below it um, yeah there's also something about its its branches that, that they have a tendency to look a little bit like human bones or something like that so there's been mythologies that perhaps it was Judas after having killed Jesus hanged himself in an elder tree um, and and these kind of mythologies express something, and I'm not sure exactly what, but they express express something about the the uh, the power of that plant. Have you read a book called The Immortality Key? Uh, Brian Moresco, I, I think, was his name. He's a very interesting guy. He's a scholar, uh, an academic, a linguist, and he, he he's been spending, I think, the last ten or twenty years of his life really looking at these kind of Christian and even pre-Christian traditions. Um, uh, and and he does a lot of work actually with this idea of beer. And actually his kind of theory is that beer was kind of a generic name 
that was fermented products, uh, but that specifically were perhaps laced with much stronger plants. And that a lot of these pre-Christian traditions that, that then kind of wove, weave together with Christian traditions actually were based on these very strong brews uh, that were kind of generically called beer, but that these beers were actually, uh, again, a, a combination of plants that, that kind of put people in, an, in a state, as you said, where there was a deeper relation with the land, maybe perhaps like how ayahuasca is used or tobacco is used or some of these stronger plants, mushrooms, um, and that that his kind of theory is that actually all of these traditions, like beer, as you said, was this very common uh, part of, of, of their religion, of, of their worldview, but that the beer was uh, quite special, kind of different from the beer that, that we drink today. Yeah, I think, I think it is always possible that people have been mixing mixing different stuff in, in, in these uh, likes of, for instance, beer. I think it is even documented that people have been using, and I don't know the name of these plants, but specific uh, either poisonous or hallucinogenic plants that have actually been used in beer, uh, even in his kind of historically recent, more recent times. So, uh, yeah, I think it's a possibility. Um, uh, but but I also think that I think sometimes uh, people have a bit of a tendency to overestimate the role of hallucinogenic medicines because I actually think that humans who are not immersed in in a modern perception like ours have a vastly greater um, capacity to experience reality in different ways than we do uh, and that's very difficult it's very difficult for us to sort of grasp or understand so uh, so I think we have a little bit of a tendency as contemporary westerners perhaps to overestimate the the role for instance of, of hallucinogenic plants Th there are certainly specific cultures where hallucinogenic plants play a central central role and where for instance uh, shamanic practices are basically based on the use of stuff like ayahuasca or, um, or uh, other uh, other plants like San Pedro and uh, peyote and, and, and these different things or that it, it can be linked with specific um, initi initiatory steps transitional rights for instance becoming an adult and so on so uh, and it's certainly also possible that that it has been used I almost feel like googling that specific plant uh, whose name I've forgotten in English right now but there is a mandrake uh, hemlock no it wasn't mandrake it Angel was some um, datura um, brumansia uh just just one moment mm -hmm. sure. <laughs> um there's a grave with a so-called vulva which is a, sh a female shaman uh and in that grave was found seeds from a plant that I am finding right now, <laughs> which in English is called Huscanus henbane. 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 Yeah. 
uh, is a very specific plant which I believe is hallucinogenic and it's found in the grave of a shamanic practitioner uh, so in such a case like that you know there's no question it has it has played a role um, but uh, is also uh, I think it's also black nightshade is uh, is like the one of the, the common names for it as well yes um, commonly known as henbane black henbane or stinking nightshade um, yeah so so this is definitely something that has played a role so um yeah. well, one of the one of the tales that that is often relayed was the berserker are you familiar with that and mm. do you think that was some um that there was some religious aspect or ceremonial aspect that was kind of charging these these warriors get because they all the, the the kind of idea was that it was almost this like supercharged warrior who, who was almost like driven by spirit to mm. uh in, in this like almost kind of like more than human like ability to fight do you do you think that was something yeah. just purely symbolic or or that there was something very literal in that story or, or that that there could have been hallucinogenic plants involved well just anything um, or you know through through religious practice or or well, I think it would have been a religious practice. Um, the the, uh, the berserker uh, is berserk means a bear shirt, so uh, that probably means that people have basically been wearing some sort of bear costume, and uh, there are also finds that show people who are wearing masks or warriors who are wearing masks, and then perhaps they're having sorts and something like that um, this is actually a kind of culture that you also find in different places around the planet um, in Africa you have leopard men or uh, lion men and this is something that's found across different cultures in a rather large area in Africa in uh, um, Mesoamerican culture you had jaguar soldiers and in I think the the in North America you had the Cheyenne dog soldiers. I'm not sure exactly about the dog soldiers, but this idea that human that it, humans become animal-like when they fight uh, that is something that you find across uh, cultures in many ways. In in uh, Chinese kung fu, you have these ideas that you are perhaps imitating a specific animal in 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 specific movements that you do so there's a drunken monkey style or there's a you know crane style and these these uh, different animal animal um, imitations um i think that with the berserker uh, there could have been indu inductions of changed state of mind it's not it's not impossible it and it, that could have been hallucinogenic, but we don't know. And I I wouldn't necessarily expect it without it actually being somehow uh, uh, documented. Uh, but um, but uh, I think there would have been military groups who would probably have been wearing um, uh, animal masking when they were fighting, and there could have been rituals that led up to that. Rituals that could have put people in a uh, in, in a change. Uh, state of mind so yeah 
and uh, and there there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of stories about berserkers in 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 like the sagas and they often they appear to be a little bit of a nuisance to uh, to like normal bourgeois people who uh, uh, you know just want to go about their lives and then they're like these crazy people who uh, who are um uh, super violent and difficult to be around <laughs> so um yeah but it's not a topic that I'm very knowledgeable about. Um, there was also, by the way, so Berserkers is one, probably a kind of society, a fighting society of sorts. Uh, and there was also a another society called Ulvhedenir, which were wolf-related. So people would perhaps uh, mask as wolves before fighting. There's some place in North America, I think it might have been the Cree in Canada who have something that is very similar to the Berserker, a um, uh, a warrior society where uh, these... I don't remember exactly how it was structured, so forgive me if I say something that's slightly incorrect in, in here, but they, I think they would be fighting naked or they would be going into war naked and their symbol was a knife that was made out of a bear's jaw so the 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 handle of the knife would be made out of a bear's jaw and they would probably be induced into this uh, warrior society through um uh, initiatory rites of sorts and the berserker uh, could could very well have been something similar to that I I could be wrong with this, but but I mean I, I'm trying to think, but but I would imagine that the kind of present day again, for lack of better words, but Scandinavia is probably one of the more secular places in the world now, um, and yet you know a big part of your work is this kind of revival or 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 or, or getting back to to the roots. Um, I guess it would be a two-part question. Like, why do you think specifically Scandinavia has become so secular? Um, maybe even the, the the positives and negatives of that. And and then, do you see that there is a a real revival or or interest in kind of getting back to to something that is, as you said, in the land, in in the people, in the rivers, and in, in the, the the memory of all of that, which which, as you said, we're also a, a part of. We're, we're not removed from. Hmm. Yeah, I think you're totally right. Scandinavia is very, very secular. Very secular. Um, I live in Denmark, southern Scandinavia. Uh, in many ways, uh, I have trouble thinking about a more secular country. Perhaps France is more secular. But um, uh, oh, they're also... There are also counterexamples to that. For instance, we still have a, a bit of a state church, actually, which is a weird anachronistic thing hanging around. Uh, but uh, and but nobody really goes, nobody really uses that church for anything, so it's a weird thing. But yeah, just to say, we are very secular in Scandinavia, and I think it has to do with, yeah, I don't know, I don't know exactly what, but I think Protestantism uh, is. A vital factor in 
making a place very secular, at least in, in the case of Scandinavia, I think it would have been. The um, I spoke to an Irish uh, author who was working on Irish land connectedness, and Ireland is a part of Northern Europe, sort of the nor North European sphere, but it remained Catholic. And that has... Catholicism, where it has certainly had very destructive aspects in some way, even abusive aspects that that you f sometimes find in Catholicism, it also has had a bit of a tendency to be somewhat less destructive to land connected connectedness than Protestantism. Like Protestantism is just like a culture side on land connectedness, whereas Catholicism is a little bit more like. Meh, Let's just continue having that sacred source there and call it something else. Oh, you have a goddess named Bridget? Let's call her um, Saint Bridget. Uh, and, and that means that, that uh, yeah, s that in some ways uh, Scandinavia has been very, gone very far down the road of, of modernization, particularly southern Scandinavia. There might also be something about our cultural history that kind of has promoted this particular movement, um, but let me not get too far into that. Yet there's another side, and that is that Scandinavia is uh, has historically been a little bit far from the European centers, most iconically in the case of Iceland which is just this amazing case of European sort of a cluster of Europeans that just was so far away that it is as if it was difficult for the 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 powers that were to to sort of really control that place and that means that in Iceland you have uh, very very live animist perceptions and uh, it is also the place from which we know the Nordic, uh, the Nordic pre-Christian um, uh, culture, because the, the 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 kind of Christianity that came to dominate uh, dominate Iceland had to be a little bit more lenient. So at a point of time where you could, you know, probably be burned at the stake for breathing at the wrong place in the Lord's Prayer. In Iceland, they were like, "Well, let's write down heathen poetry." So we have this whole amazing cultural heritage that was um, saved for posterity by these people who were simultaneously very far away yet incredibly literate and intellectual and uh, and basically created a whole world literature of an amazing level of literacy and so that is part of the, so that's part of the story that there is one thing is that we have in many ways become very secular, but there's also distance to uh, to modernity. And you can also find that a bit of that, in, I think, in mainland Scandinavia. I think if when I interact with Norwegians, for instance, I sense that Norwegians, I mean, it, it sounds weird, but I, I sense that Norwegians have a stronger animist sort of perception, even than Danes. Which ain't Danes are probably some of the thick headedest Europeans there are, but Norwegians, uh, it, there are distant places in Norway where, you know, the, the, the powers that were 
didn't really manage to reach their tentacles all the way out there and strangle the last bits of animism out of people in quite the same way as in 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 more central parts of europe so and and they have uh now i just take norway as an example there there is beautiful culture ways of singing that are very powerful and and beautiful also and an enormous um lore about plants for instance that that uh, that exists there um i could probably say similar things about sweden like sweden has some of the most amazing examples of for instance surviving pre-christian uh practices there there's been cases of i would say fairly clear-cut pre-christian shamanism that was practiced down fairly close to our age in 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 parts of sweden uh and so um and and so in 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 places like norway and sweden where there is this you know you sense a very there's a proximity between a, an almost a little bit of a militant modernity uh and this other uh this other thing that 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 is there in sweden many people will be telling you that their the grandmothers you know were you know warning them about elves in the forests if you go through the forest at, at night you have to be careful and you you shouldn't just pee anywhere if you're in nature because there can be little people there and and they're going to get angry if you pee in their house you know <laughs> these kind of things and so uh, so there is so so Scandinavia has a little bit that a funny tension i think between on the one hand having a bit of animist tradition uh and on and on the other hand being rather uh, rather modernized in many ways so many uh people just from from i think europe and in the us in general uh it, it seems like again for many reasons uh have been cut off from from their traditions and and especially in the 60s the 70s that there was a real as you said kind of this diaspora going outside of our cultures to find answers to to these very human questions going to india um going to tibet uh, learning about these eastern traditions um but it was always this thing of then well well but that's not exactly mine too like how, how do what, what is my place in that um and and i think that's something very fascinating that you're doing is is this idea of 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 going back into maybe even rebirthing in a new way uh traditions uh, again of the land of where people are actually from do you do you see a real resurgence of interest in that do you do you see people maybe also realizing that with this kind of as you said maybe to an extreme even this kind of militant modernity are also realizing that there that there's something maybe that they are lacking that 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 modernity isn't giving them all of the answers to their questions and and they are looking even in a spiritual maybe for lack of better words but a spiritual way that they're also not necessarily finding or, or they're realizing there's a limit in taking that from other cultures uh and, and this desire to maybe go back to more traditional or, or remembering the past remembering history remembering the wisdom that is in these traditions that is in the land and 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 a, an increasing interest in in Scandinavia for that 
Um, yeah, I think there is an in increasing interest, and I think it's all over the wor world, actually. Uh, if you look at Earth-focused spiritualities as kind of a, a general cluster of worldviews, then they are experiencing a, uh, a steep rise in this historic moment. Um, you see African Americans turning en masse towards uh, Afro-diasporic uh, and Afro-traditional religiosities. You see Eastern Europeans and Baltics, Slavics, super involved in their respective paganisms or neo-paganisms. Um, you see it among indigenous peoples all over the planet uh, that they are turning towards their own... I mean, many indigenous peoples may have been exposed to Christianization and so on, but today many of them are turning towards their these earth-focused uh, religiosities. So you s I, I certainly think that there is a, uh, a uh, resurgence going on. Um, I would also say, by the way, that when you talk about the whole thing about going to India and visiting these kind of places, uh, or different places like you've been to Amazonia, that uh, I've done that too and a lot of I think a lot of us have done that interestingly in Nordic traditional knowledge there's a concept for that which means which is finfara fin fairing now the Finns that is an old name for the Sami which was considered an important other uh, and relating with the Sami was a really important part of Nordic culture through through history. There's also been a lot of abusive relation, colonizing and and culture side going on, definitely. But that, but right now I'm talking about a slightly different aspect. If you go all the way back to the pre-Christian uh, era, you find that uh, that when Christianity was implemented in Norway, Christianizers wanted to abolish something called finfara, finfaring, visiting the Sami, which according to these Norwegian laws, it seems that people did that to develop their uh, shamanic practice or their animist knowledge somehow. So visiting Sami was a protocol for, or probably a protocol for interacting with other peoples in order to uh, grow spiritual knowledge. Now, that wasn't considered weird because people hadn't become nationalist yet. Today, our way of perceiving culture and cultural interaction is very, very sort of bugged down by nationalism. And I'm also talking about the left wing here. The identitarian left is has this kind of dirty little secret that it's very nationalist in its way of perceiving human culture. Human culture is perceived as these monolithic, uh, closed, entropic holes that where the, the, there's a uniform cultural mass inside a container, and these containers, transgression between these containers are not possible, and if it is done anyway, it is faced with steep reactions. Uh, and I think these, the uh, and, and that is not because we shouldn't be uh, extremely respectful in cultural exchange, it's also not because we shouldn't be extremely aware of white privilege and how white entitlement can lead to abusive patterns. In cultural exchange, we should, but cultural exchange has to be possible. If it's not possible, we have become fucking fascists. And uh, and uh, so that is extremely important that we stay 
in 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 a space of understanding human interaction where uh uh, cultural exchange uh, remain uh, remain a possibility, and like I I have uh, in many ways I have learned to think about my own culture by uh, because I did my my PhD uh, and I went to Brazil and learned from people who practiced Afro-Brazilian religion. I mean, you could say I I'm thinking about. Nordic culture in a way that is inspired by how Candomblé priestesses think about their cultural background. It's not always completely visible in in sort of the surface communication on my channel, but it's actually it's actually what I'm I'm trying to do. Now these people have built these very very strong and very culturally resilient you could almost call it safe spaces in modernity where when you are you, you are inside the uh, what they call an ile a space of a spirit space uh, a space of of power um then you are in what you would call an you could almost call it an an, an a spiritual safe space uh, and that is something that they have built the capacity to do uh because they have been faced with some of the most harsh and like unimaginably brutal oppression that uh has uh, uh that has existed in uh, during colonization i think that these ways of building safe spaces have an incredible capacity to um uh basically lend a count what i call a counter modern uh, way of operating in the world to other humans. Um, some people are already applying it. You have uh, indigenous Americans in Brazil who are applying Afro-Brazilian uh, spiritual technologies in recovering their indigenous American spirituality because they've been exposed to very violent colonization. So they lost a lot of their traditional culture. So, so uh, yeah. So this is just to say I think that it's important to to uh, uh, I think there's I think there is a an incredible resurgence uh, that moves today, but it's important that it it does not end in nationalist categories where you know we would end up being white nationalists, but that it it uh, learns from. Uh, indigenous modes of connectivity as the base of how to uh, grow and continuously reinvent culture into our age. Because if you look at how indigenous groups are operating culturally, you see that they are in fact very interlinked. You see that a lot of cultural decolonization by indigenous groups is basically based on a lot of cultural exchange. And um, so indigenous groups are borrowing a lot from each other. Uh, basically, in order to uh, affirm and re reliven uh, their uh, their traditional their practice of a traditional knowledge, and uh, yeah, so rant over. I think it's important that 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 uh, those people who have been racialized as white by the systems of oppression that they are not excluded from participated in participating in these uh these uh, uh cultural exchange because uh that would basically uh i think it would reproduce a fundamentally racist structure which is white exceptionalism is white if white people are the only ones who can't participate in cultural uh 
uh, cultural exchange, which it sometimes seems like if you look at uh, some of the discourse that goes around in, in social media spaces, then you're actually enforcing white exceptionalism. Uh, you have changed the valorizing structures. Perhaps you are devalorizing white whiteness, which is a good idea if you look at the history of colonialism. But if you, but 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 you shouldn't maintain the, the the seclusion of whiteness, the exceptionalism of whiteness, even if you devalorize it. <laughs> yeah, great. Um, as we begin to, to wrap up, um, I find that very fascinating that you spent time in Brazil and, and also beginning to to use that as a lens to begin to, in a way, rediscover Nordic traditions. And I think Brazil is such a fascinating place because it is such a such a melting pot of people as well. You you have the the, the own indigenous cosmovisions, worldviews uh, stemming from the jungle, which you know. Uh, is a huge part of Brazil, uh, and then you have the European, the African influence that came in, that the Christianity, the African kind of uh, more, you could call it maybe spiritism, and Brazil has this very fascinating the, these systems that have really emerged, and they're very Brazilian in that way, like kind of from all of these different people, uh, things like Candomblé, Umbanda, Santo Daime, Novo Uniao, the, the you know the, these very Brazilian. Um, movements um, and again this is a huge question but but maybe are you able to, to speak a little bit uh, about some of the things you've learned spending time in Brazil I mean it sounds like you've spent a lot of time with Candomblé and 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 maybe just a, a bit of, of what that is and, and and what you've learned from that and, and how it's also helped to you to, to shape and, and and kind of see some of your own traditions because I think that's that's a super vital point that you've made and 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 because it's also very interesting that it's in brazil because brazil has done just that they've taken these different traditions in order to to create something new but then also to go back and to be able to better understand all of the roots as well hmm. yeah brazil is absolutely fascinating i mean i've never been to india but i imagine that Brazil is almost as spiritually intense and as India, um, but uh, yeah, like one thing that's characteristic of Brazil is that the fundamental mode of these kinds of of uh, religiosity is non-nationalist. That doesn't mean that nationalism doesn't play a role today. You have a lot, for instance, and a lot of people come in from North America. North America has. In, in my experience, very dominated by nationalist perceptions, uh, so, and then and because uh, North America is, is very uh, sets a lot of the norms for contemporary thinking uh, in the contemporary space, then you you see those um, uh, disseminating a lot. So. It's not because I want to have a go at Americans. Uh, I actually love Americans. <laughs> I think that I think you're great guys, <laughs> and I think that in in a sense, I think North Americans are probably the ones who are going to be finding some of the important solutions exactly because they're so immersed immersed in some of the tightest confrontation with the, the most difficult questions of today. Anyway, that was a sidetrack. Now I think uh, I think uh, Brazil uh, has this. Yeah, non-nationalist mode of religiosity, where, for instance, deities and spirits, they seem to be not dependent on religion. They 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 can they can kind of move around between religion, religions. It happens fairly often in Brazil that a person will start perhaps being initiated or 
start practicing a kind of spiritism or perhaps kind of verging into Umbanda which is a kind of spiritism that leans into the uh, the African forms and then perhaps a spirit guide will be saying to the person you know what I actually don't want to be worshipped in Umbanda I would like to be worshipped in Candomblé and then the person will transfer to Candomblé because the spirit in Umbanda is telling a person to go to another religion now that particular movement between Umbanda and Candomblé is a major driving force in 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 the the religious landscape in Brazil because what happened in the last century was that Umbanda grew very strongly in Brazil but then inside Umbanda it seems that spirits they kind of prefer being worshipped in Candomblé actually so a lot of the people who converted to Umbanda then went on and converted to Candomblé so uh, so this is just to, to, to give you an example that that um, it's non like the 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 groups are not the important thing it's the spirits and they 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 will transfer humans between classes of of uh, of religion so when you look at uh how for instance these um uh people they think about their um religiosity then there's a lot of uh things going on and the trickster that we spoke about before is a very central function for them that there that there can be these very fluid inversions in their transfers of meaning so and this is particularly important when you look at how they identify for instance west african deities like the urisha with christian saints so they they when they identify then sometimes it seems that the saint is almost an inversion of the urisha so the powerful hyper masculine war god ugun is identified with the feminine and kind of gentle Santo Antonio who's holding a bouquet of flowers in his arms or the also powerful and masculine hunter god Oshasi who's shooting a bow and arrow is identified with the uh, also kind of feminine Saint Sebastian Saint Sebastian who's pierced by arrow and tied to a tree <coughs> they almost look a little bit like inversions of each other <coughs> that is a trickster function in the in the identification between these uh, African deities and the saints or the symbolism of the the, the culture the, the dominant culture and power and that is a particular function that 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 you can see that it has really worked in all kinds of ways to safeguard the powerful animist technology of the West African peoples. Now if you look with a similar eye on North European cultural history you'll see that that it seems that people have been doing something similar in the early in early Middle Ages that when people started to become Christian then interestingly a whole cluster of saints emerged, emerged that seems almost identical or they have too remarkable for it to be a coincidence similarities with heathen deities so uh it's slightly different they didn't identify uh the the the, the god of fertility Frey with uh an existing uh um uh, christian saint but a saint certainly emerged that is so similar to Frey that it's too yeah too remarkable to be a coincidence um, and that happened in different places around northern Europe so for me like 
taking that slightly fluid perspective that these Brazilians have when they look at their own history and they talk about the saints and the Orisha and how they they are in relation that has that to me that was a path into open parts of uh, North European history that a lot of people interested for example in the past didn't really want to look at for instance uh, an enormous tradition of um, uh, calendar uh, symbols attached to calendar and runic symbols attached to, uh, counting the year by runic symbols and so on and so forth stuff that emerged in the Christian age but which has an animist feel in it there's an animist relation pattern that somehow drives it so uh, so I was inspired by the, the the Brazilians in basically saying, well, we can engage that as an expression of animism. It doesn't really matter that much that this stuff may have emerged in a Christian age. Some of these symbolisms of these prim staffs that mark specific holidays might even be Christian uh, Christian symbols. They might even be Christian holidays. Who cares if they if they are. Uh, vessels for a kind of land connectivity then they are or if they can be a vessel for a kind of land connectivity uh, uh, through talking and thinking about them in, in consistent ways that has integrity then then we are opening uh, then we're opening this part of uh, uh, cultural history to to renewing flow of uh, engagement into our time. So, maybe one last question. Uh, so, your 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 name is Rune. Is that is that a name you you gave yourself? Is is it a birth name? Because also, and, and maybe it's something you can talk about. Is is this idea which you just used also the the word Rune? Uh, that seems to also be kind of one of these pillars of, of, of Nordic philosophy. So is that something you can maybe speak about as well? Like, like what are the runes? What, what does that symbolize? Are, are there practices around that? And, and, and why is that so important? Um, yeah, so what are runes and all that? That's a big question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm actually going to uh, prepare an online course talking specifically about runes uh, because it's, yeah, just... It's quite it's a quite awesome thing, but um, yeah, I'm just called Rune because my parents gave me that name. It's a fairly normal name in Scandinavia. Um, uh, in the 19th century, Scandinavian communities started having then the, start having these um, nationalist movements actually, in which many started to retake, uh, for instance, Viking names such as Rune uh, and and uh, give them to their children uh, before that. Uh, and also, in fact, still so many of us are named uh, Martin and Paul and Matthew and Peter and uh, all these Benjamin, uh, all these common common names that you find in different European countries that are typically derived from biblical stories and so on. Uh, yeah, so that's just the story about that. Runes themselves is a huge issue. They, 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 uh, a writing system that has emerged um, around the first century CE and then developed up through the 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 coming millennia to be this uh, well writing system. But the interesting thing about runes is also that each rune has um, meaning. 
So uh, they have a name, and these names are then sort of explored or described in ancient poems. Uh, and that's why a lot of uh, that that today that has become incredibly inspirational for a lot of people who then see the runes, for instance, as a tool for divination or as a tool to perform magic by, for instance, combining runes in, in different ways. And there are also uh, uh, traces that that people might have done similar stuff back through the ages. Uh, and uh, yeah, I like to think about the runes as a a pattern of creation that they are in a sense a, a bit of an expression of the entirety of reality but uh, and there are uh, expressions of this kind of an idea in specific parts of the the, the very old uh, material uh, the so-called Eric poems you sometimes find uh, something like that idea expressed so uh, yeah so, but I think it's probably too far to get start getting <laughs> getting deep into this stuff right now. But uh, but please, uh, if you follow my <laughs> follow my channel, I uh, hope to be publishing a, a, a course called the Animacy of Runes. I think it'll be called the Animacy of Runes here sometime during uh, during autumn two thousand and twenty three. Great room. Well, thank you very much. Is there? It looks like we're we're a bit over two hours now. Um, is there anything that, that you, you'd like to share that we didn't touch on? Anything that's still in your mind? I'm good. <laughs> Just yeah, find my platform, Nordic Animism, on all those social media that you're probably already following. And, uh, and then, uh, yeah, <laughs> thank you very much for bringing me on, man. Yeah, and uh, Nordic Animism is the the name of of the channel. And yeah. if anyone was interested in in reaching out to you or contacting you, is there a way to do that through through those social yeah, media the, sites? Yeah, the, it's the it's possible through my homepage and or my social media. Okay, great. great. I can't guarantee that I answer because I am constantly inundated in social media communication. But yeah. Great. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate your time and, and just you sitting down with us and, and, and sharing in your, your, your knowledge and wisdom. And it was a fascinating conversation. And there, there's so much there, too. I mean, like you said, even something like the runes could, could be a whole episode. So uh, maybe in the future we can do a round two and, and go a, a bit deeper into some of these things. So Totally, totally. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm on for it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate it. Thank you. All right, everyone. That's it. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I found it very fascinating. It's a subject I'm, I'm also very interested in. Um, so I really hope you enjoyed that. As always, if you're able to support this podcast, that's a really big help to me. Patreon is a beautiful way. It's a website. Uh, you can sign up for as little as a dollar a month. There's different tiers you can sign up for, and all the tiers give you different kind of benefits, things like early access to shows, uh, some bonus material, Q&As. Uh, to all the patrons, all the people supporting in that way, as always, thank you very much for your support. Uh, and if you're able to do that, that's a really big help uh, in allowing me to continue to, to do this podcast. Um, if you're not able to do that, as always, just doing some of the really small things make a really big difference with the algorithms and getting this show out to a bigger audience. So if you're viewing this on YouTube or, or Rumble, um, hitting the subscribe button, turning on the notification bell, liking the video, leaving any questions, comments in the comments section, uh, and then with the audio version on uh, Apple Podcasts or Spotify as well, following the show, subscribing, uh, also leaving a start rating and a short review is a really big help. 
So uh, that's it for this episode. Uh, my next few guests, uh, I'm actually unsure of. Uh, I recently did a, I was interviewed on a podcast, so I may try and publish that as one of the episodes. Um, but there's uh, there's a few people I'm in talks with, uh, so I, I, I hope to bring them on, but uh, it's still not finalized, so I don't want to say quite yet. Um, but as always, uh, again, I hope you enjoy this episode. Uh, thank you all for tuning in, for supporting the, the, the work I'm doing. I hope this finds you all well, and I will see you all on the next episode. Thank mm-hmm. you.